how do you stay faithful as a witness to Jesus in a hostile environment? And, a, and actually, why would you want to do that? You know, perhaps you're there in school, uh, at the school break or in your office, and some of the, the guys around you start to outdo each other in their foul conversation. The jokes are getting dirtier. And then one of them notices you're not joining in, and they rather aggressively ask you, well, why aren't you laughing? Or maybe the girls are getting together and um, in the break and the conversation turns to the usual gossip and they start criticizing that person who's not in the room. And as you try to change the conversation, they turn on you and say, what's your problem? Why are you so uptight? A friend of mine told me at the time that uh, he was leading a sales team. They were a big convention far away from home. And at the end of the day, one of the guys suggested, hey, let's head over to that bar where there's that pole dancing and the girls don't wear too many clothes. And you let them know that you're not going to be joining them because, um, well, they start mocking you. You're so prudish. Uh, why are you being like this? Well, what do you say? What are you going to do? Are you going to make a, a skillful joke and avoid more negative comments? Or are you going to actually talk about Jesus and the difference that he's made in your life and how he's changed your attitudes and your priorities? When was the last time we actually confessed our faith and obedience to Jesus Christ amongst a crowd of non-Christians. Well, none of us have been in crowds of non-Christians for quite a while. But when we had the opportunity, when did we last speak of Christ in a hostile crowd? Have we ever confessed Christ to a hostile crowd? Now, we can be very bold, surrounded by Christian friends uh, about our stand with Christ. But what we really like when we're the only Christian in the room do you remember Peter's uh, boast to Jesus the night before they walked over to the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, as they walked, Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. And, and he says, even if all fall away, I will not. Now, if you listened last week, you'll remember that Jesus prophesied what would actually happen. Truly, I tell you today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter was confident that would never take place um, he doubled down he insisted even if I have to die with you I will never disown you well when Judas came with the guards they all ran as fast as they could and they left Jesus now our passage today is full of words about witness or testimony Within nine verses, it, it occurs in some form or other seven times. And that seems to be the major theme that runs through these verses, that of bearing witness under persecution and suffering. And Mark gives us another of his classic sandwiches. And we have portrayed before us a side-by-side -side contrast between Jesus and Peter. The courageous and faithful witness of Jesus against the threefold denial of Peter. And so today I want us to consider these two main points of confession in verses 55 to 65 and denial in verses 65, 66 to 72. And I want us to think this morning about this practical question. How do you stay faithful as a witness to Jesus in a hostile culture? And the first thing to notice is that we will only be witnesses to Jesus when we understand his uniqueness. Consider 
his confession in verses 55 to 65. There are three bits of information that Mark records to help us see the uniqueness of Jesus in these verses. Firstly, a biased and crooked investigation could not charge him with any wrong. Look at verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking to for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could not find any. This was not a balanced and fair trial. Uh, even though it was the middle of the night, the witnesses were already summoned and ready to give their testimony. And yet their testimony just didn't agree. Um, different witnesses came up with false statements that couldn't uh, be added together to make a coherent case. I mean, we, we've been witnessing at the moment in Holyrood an extraordinary investigation by MSPs. Uh, and as the press report it, we're hearing very different accounts of what took place and, and why, you know, what, what is true, what is false and, and what is being covered up. That's what they're trying to uh, uncover. But just consider this for a moment. Jesus in his public and private life, even at a crooked trial, they could find nothing against him. Isn't that extraordinary? His life and his speech were blameless. And it was clear to the high priest that uh, as he watched that this was going nowhere. And you can almost hear the, the desperation in the question to Jesus in verse 16. Are you not going to answer? What is uh, this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Now here is one approach, of course, to false accusations. No comment uh, allowed the lies to flap and flounder like a fish out of water. But I want to suggest to you that the silence of Jesus speaks to his uniqueness. His silence, secondly, recalls his identity as the righteous suffering servant of Isaiah 53 verse 7. So keep your finger in Mark and turn back to Isaiah 53. Uh, this was a, a prophecy uttered by uh, um, Isaiah 800 years before uh, Jesus and he wrote that the servant of the Lord would be despised and rejected uh, verse 5 he'd be pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities even though he was uh, himself without sin he was totally righteous according to verse 11 and look specifically at verses 6 and 7 we all like sheep have gone astray each of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so, you see, as we turn back to, uh, to Mark chapter 15, uh, read this 14 just you know read read this section in the light of that 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 um that reading from Isaiah uh, 53 Jesus was the righteous innocent sufferer who chose not to defend himself he had come to bear our shame and our guilt so that we could receive forgiveness and peace and if you're watching this as someone who's not a Christian can I ask you to this question have you ever considered the blameless life of Jesus it's an extraordinary thing this crooked trial could find nothing on him have you come to see that how central his death is if we have 
in any hope of relationship with God to deal with our problem of sin. And Charlotte Chapel, we must always keep the, the good news of Jesus central uh, and his death as central in our proclamation. Our confession and testimony as a church, the city of Edinburgh, must always be centered upon Jesus and his sin-bearing death as the only hope of salvation. And we must also be faithful witnesses to the third aspect of this uniqueness that we see here in verses 61 to 62, his public uh, confession. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? The high priest posted, uh, posed this question because he was keen to get a response that would be alarming to the Roman authorities. Are you the king promised in the scriptures, the, the one who would bring in God's everlasting kingdom? Now, in the mouth of the high priest, when he asked Jesus if he is the son of the blessed one, this is another way of saying, are you the king of Psalm 2 who would possess the nations, who would smash up all their enemies? To the high priest, this would not imply a claim to divinity, I don't think, but it would get a, certainly a big reaction from Pilate to, if Jesus thought he was that sort of king, that Psalm 2 king. And here in response to direct hostile uh, questioning, Jesus did not back down to save his own skin. And he not only accepts the title of Messiah, of being the king spoken of in Psalm 2, but he makes a far greater statement about his unique identity. I am, said Jesus, verse 62. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is who Jesus thinks he is. And it's critical that we understand what Jesus is saying here. If Jesus is who he claims he is, then that should transform our whole lives, for it is a claim to be co-equal with God. This is exactly how the high priests understood it, as he tore his clothes and charges Jesus with blasphemy deserving of death. And the word that really makes this clear is the word sitting. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. I, you know, that is at the right hand of God. Now, another key cross-reference uh, for Mark's gospel is Daniel chapter 7. Let's take the time to look at it together. Let's keep a finger here. Turn back to uh, Daniel chapter 7. And uh, you'll look at verses 9 and 10. You'll see uh, in Daniel's vision who stands and who sits. If you have a look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Do you get it? Who's sitting? Who's standing? The court was seated and the books were opened. Only God, the judge, sits. The rest of creation stands before him. But Daniel saw something more. If you look at verse uh, 13, 
In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Well, Jesus says, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of Man to whom God has given this rule over all peoples and nations and languages in an everlasting kingdom. And you, high priest, will see me, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of God, co-equal with God. And not only will you see me sitting with God, you will see me coming in glory with the clouds of heaven as your judge. That's why he tore his clothes. This was the confession of Jesus before those who thought themselves the authority over Israel. They did not accept Jesus's testimony. They just saw it as blasphemous and they condemned him as worthy of death. Well, Jesus knew that they would respond exactly that way. Remember, he predicted what was going to take place. But can I suggest to you that this is also our natural response to hearing the claim of Jesus to be Lord over our whole lives. Uh, many times I've tried to talk to people about Jesus and quite often the response is, well, look, I'm just not interested. Um, but what would be the response if I press the point? Look, the one you're not interested in is the, is the one who actually has the right to be served by you and worshipped by you. He has the rights to your total obedience. It's irrelevant whether you're not interested. He is your Lord. Are you going to submit to him? He, he should define what is right and wrong. He is the unique son of God, the king over all peoples. He's your king. Will you submit to him? Now, what do you think would be the likely response if I pushed and pressed in that way? Well, notice here that as Jesus stood before them, they showed their hatred and their animosity. They spat at him. They punched him. They mocked him. They beat him. And that was just the start of the suffering he would endure for being a faithful witness. How did Jesus endure all this humiliation, all this mockery and suffering? How did he endure the injustice of it all? Well, because he knew, firstly, it was all purposeful. He was achieving our salvation. Secondly, he knew that he would be vindicated before their very eyes. Beyond the cross and the resurrection and the ascension as the Messiah King, they would see him return as the glorious Son of Man. And if they continued in their rejection of him as King, they would meet him again as their judge. See, we must come to know and trust Jesus as our saviour. For if we continue in our rebellion against God, we will meet Jesus on that day as our judge. Psalm 2 gives this advice in verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your, uh, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the wise way 
when you understand who Jesus is. And that's who Jesus confesses that he is, the glorious Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's willing to endure the suffering because of these truths about him. He was acting as the unique saviour, uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so take refuge in him before he returns again as king and judge. Now, at the start, I asked uh, these questions. How do you stay faithful as a witness to Jesus Christ in a hostile context? And, and also, why would you even want to do that? Steve McAlpine has just brought out a book entitled Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. And the purpose of the book is to help us cope with this transition, where in the past, uh, as Christians in Scotland, we were seen as the good guys, but now we're seen as the, the bad guys in our society. Uh, as we live and teach what the Bible has to say, particularly, sadly, about the issues of sex and gender, we're being viewed as, as hateful bigots. We're seen as part of the problem and not the solution. It's a big shift. And how are we going to cope in that hostile environment? Well, I want to suggest to you that we will only stay faithful as a witness to Jesus when we understand and are totally convinced of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That he is the unique saviour, that he is the suffering servant, that he really is the divine son of man who will return again in glory as the judge. Only with those deep convictions will we be willing to suffer for him. Because we know he's so precious to us, he is my saviour. And because I know he's going to return as the judge and vindicate all those who have lived and suffered and died proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only with those deep convictions, when I have that clear in my mind, will I be willing to stand for him. And if I don't believe those, then I will be distancing myself and become a denier. Because that's exactly what we see in Peter's example. In verses 66 to 72, we see his denial. And here we have an amazing description of the drift of denial. In verse 54, we see Peter following from a distance, a distance that foreshadows the denial. Um, and then we see him entering into the courtyard of the high priest and identifying himself physically, not with Jesus in his trial, but with the captors with the guards who are warming themselves by the fire. He just wants to, to fit in. He doesn't want to get noticed or stand out. He just wants to be one of the crowd. You know, I don't think it's just teenagers that um, feel peer pressure. I don't think it goes away as adults. We all have a huge desire to simply want to fit in, for other people to like us, to be with the majority. Um, as, as a church, we can succumb to the peer pressure of our society just by being a church. Well, we'll just say the positive things and never talk about the negative implications. And then, then, they'll, then we'll be left alone. We'll be OK. And as individual Christians, if we just keep our heads down in difficult conversations or start making excuses for why we, we actually can't start making to church or no longer want to identify ourselves with other Christians in school or college in the workplace, I think the alarm bell should start ringing in our heads if that's the case. Distance often precedes denial. This was the start of Peter disowning Jesus. While Jesus was being interrogated by the high priest, 
Peter started to get challenged by the servant of the high priest. And at first he simply played dumb. Verse 67, uh, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entrance, entryway. Notice he increases his distance from Jesus. And then his denials become increasingly public and vehement. Verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. Verse 70, again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. He's absolutely full of fear. This is the anatomy of denial. And how did he get here? From only hours before declaring his loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus. Well, because at this point, he really doesn't understand the uniqueness of Jesus. And that the way King Jesus would accomplish our salvation would be through suffering and death. He just did not get this. And that even as Jesus was being mocked, one day he would be seen as the glorious son of, son of man. He just couldn't see that as he saw the suffering at the time. And so when push came to shove, he cared more about the judgment of a servant girl and the crowd than his loyalty to Jesus. He feared their displeasure more than he longed for the approval of Jesus. Well, do you see the link? Have we really understood what Christian discipleship is about? Let me remind you what we saw earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, that the time when Jesus called to the crowd uh, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, unless we understand the unique glory of Jesus, we will not withstand persecution and suffering now. Instead, we'll be ashamed of him and his gospel now. And if we stay like that, well, he warns us he's going to be ashamed of us. And this is what was happening to Peter at this point. Desperately seeking to cling on to his own life by avoiding being a witness to Christ and his gospel. But it's futile to, uh, see, to try and seek to save our lives now. We will only lose it, Jesus says. And if we're willing to lose our lives now, we will gain life, eternal life. Well, what about you and what about me today? Are we confessors? Or deniers. I wonder have we ever denied Jesus out of fear of others? What does this passage have to say to that situation? Well I think we see a wonderful moment of prophetic grace in verse 72. Immediately the cock crowed the second time 
And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. It is those tears of a broken heart when confronted with the sin of denial that I think gives this section hope. Why had Jesus told them ahead of time that he would be a denier? Why give him the second crow of the, of the cockerel as the time marker of his threefold denial? And I believe it is grace. Jesus knew of his denial and had already given them an amazing promise of restoration. Look back at uh, verse uh, 28 to see what Jesus had said just before he spoke of the prediction of him falling away. You will all fall away, Jesus said. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He was going to the cross because of our unfaithfulness and our sin. And beyond the cross, he would go on ahead of them to Galilee to gather his scattered disciples under his leadership and care once more. There was grace. There was forgiveness because of the cross. Now, what boss would show such grace after such terrible failure of loyalty? How amazing is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? There's forgiveness for our failures and there's an invitation to acknowledge him as saviour and Lord through true repentance and faith. So in conclusion, how will we withstand trials and persecution? Uh, this is how we will make a good confession by so meditating on what the Bible has to say and asking God to reveal to us more of the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, that we'll be so convinced of his uniqueness and we'll be so convinced that he is again returning in glory that we will have the courage to stand for him now when it looks foolish to some to be trusting him because we will know that Christ is our only hope in life and death.